0: Well, good evening. Welcome back. Hopefully you found a new friend uh, this evening uh, and I uh, hope you're having a good uh, beginning or middle, I guess, of the bank holiday weekend. And, uh, and my name is John. If you haven't had a ch- chance to meet, uh, I'm the vicar here and it's great to be with you. And do, do come and say hello. And i like to... Uh, meet people who walk in through the door for the first time and and, uh, introduce myself and get to know you in the process, do do come and say hello in that. So we are beginning a new series today uh, in the book of Acts, so if you want to grab your Bibles, uh, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 1 and uh, beginning at verse 1, it will come up on the screens as well, Uh, but if you want to uh, follow it along in your Bibles, which I encourage you to do just to get yourself... Orientated around it, it's one one zero two, page one one zero two in the blue Bibles on your coffee tables, or indeed on your phones or wherever. Uh, and it's the first book after the accounts of Jesus's life, which you'll pick up in the first verse of this passage. Let me read this for us, and it's Luke writing this, the same Luke that wrote the Gospel of of Luke. Wondered where that was going. There's no surprise there. So Luke writing, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to them and and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. That it's the same word yesterday, today and forever and yet you give us a spirit of God to see it for today, for our own lives, for our church, for our community. And so Lord, would you speak to us? Give us hearts open to hear what you have to say. May we be receptive to your voice this evening. Amen. When was the last time you took a moment to step back from your current situation and reevaluate things? Or maybe reevaluate your life as a whole? When I was younger, that seemed to happen more often than not. I seem to remember feeling I had a lot more freedom than I do now, that ability to be able to step back from things and say, my life could go any direction I want. I wasn't married, I didn't have kids, I didn't have a job that rooted me somewhere, and and I had this kind of freedom which I really, really enjoyed. Uh, And I was able to genuinely kind of seek God. God, where is it? you're? It could be anywhere and anything. God, what is it that you're calling me to do? And maybe some of you are in that stage of life without many things to pin you down. But i found that it's easy in life for one year now to to look not too dissimilar from the last and next year to not look too dissimilar from that year. Before I know it many years go by and I wonder, I ask myself the question, am I still as open, still as open to hearing the voice of God now as I was back then? It's so easy to settle. So the question I want to ask today is, what would it take, what would it take you and I to be willing to to turn our lives upside down and take another look at the reasons we are doing what we're doing now, the reasons that the status quo is where it is? How might we do life in a way that's not about settling but is about embracing the possibilities that God might put in our path? So in the passage that we read today, the disciples are at a point where they have had a heck of a forty days, heck of a few few weeks. I mean, they really have been through the mill. Uh, just over 40 days ago, uh, as we read this passage now, the, the disciples thought that their friend, the one that they gave up everything to follow, the, the one who they abandoned everything for, did seem to do what no, none of them thought, which was to die upon a cross a criminal's death and and for them to live in fear and so they locked themselves in a room tucked away in uh, 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 tucked away in the back street somewhere and in, in, ho- in the hope that the Romans wouldn't find them and they would be kind of associates of this criminal and then as we know only three days later Jesus miraculously appears to them rises from the dead and appears in the flesh to them they had encountered the risen Jesus if that had been you what would go through your mind the roller coaster of emotions going from from uh, despair to fear to joy and then you start beginning to rebuild your life again because now the things as it was only a few days ago are back on track The, the things that you talked about you dreamt about they're back on track the, the ministry that you got to share with this man, Jesus, who claimed to be the Son of God, that's back on now. You can start getting involved again. And they've had 40 days of that happening. At the end of John, uh, we see at the end of John's Gospel, we see him Jesus recommissioning them on, on the side of the seas of Galilee, and and they're going fishing, and he uses that Imagery to say, remember, remember when I first called you, I said you're going to be fishers of men? Remember that, that's what you're here for. You're going to catch people and draw them close to me, is what he was saying. He said, they need to have life and I I want you to be the people that are going to share in that with me. He'd recommission them not to hold back. The work they'd started with Jesus and in the, the passage in John echoes the very beginning of their encounter with Jesus where of course they're fishing again and it's a similar encounter because they can't catch fish and Jesus makes the fish appear, both in the beginning encounter and the end encounter. It's an echo to remind them what their mission is for. And for 40 days, that's how life is for the disciples, just as it was with a new passion and a new mission. All the expectancies that they had for the future rested now in hope again. And sometime in those few weeks, we get a glimpse of of this in in the first chapter of Acts that we just read, which is a summary of all that had happened. We see this in verse chapter 4. Jesus tells them to wait for the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem on one occasion while he was eating with them. He gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so they know that there is more coming. They know that there is this Holy Spirit, the one that is also called the, the advocate, the one that would accompany them, the one would equip them to do the things that they would seen Jesus doing. But still, their expectation wasn't quite right. Just two verses later, after that summary that Luke gives in uh, that first chapter, he says, They then gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They still hadn't got it. They still hadn't got it. All their plans that they they had for their lives were all wrapped up in Jesus. Were all wrapped up in things being just as they were, and their plans for Jesus were different from the, were different than Jesus' plans for himself. Their plans for Jesus is that he was he, he was going to come and he was going to do this thing called the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. They were harking back to the to the to the plans that the Jewish people had or the dreams the Jew- Jewish people had for the restoration of Israel as a nation uh, as it once was under King David to be restored once again. The land that they were promised in, in, for generations, their ancestors moved into that land and they moved uh, with Moses and then, and then Joshua into the promised land and this was the land that was theirs. And then we get this mismatch though. Because that's not the king that Jesus was ever planning to be. They were expecting a king to restore Israel back to the glory days. And Jesus would be the king of this new nation of Israel. And that they would be at the right hand. That was what they expected. What expectations do you have for your life? This morning, um, we were getting ready to go to church as a family, and, and uh, you know, it, it, it's bedlam usually on a Sunday morning in our house. I mean, it's so stressful. Um, I'm not ever particularly in a holy place on a Sunday morning, trying to get the kids ready, eating breakfast, all the other stuff, um, and it's noisy, and they're, like, fighting about this or fighting about that, and... Yeah, it's probably the most unhappy place on the street to be honest. Sunday morning in the vicarage, um, and um, and I was I responded in a certain way, and my wife Sue she said, John, you know you might be a little less grumpy if you had lower expectations for Sunday mornings. If you just lowered your expectations that it wasn't going to be a peaceful you know, existence, and you just realize that it is what it is, and it is the same every single Sunday morning, then maybe you'd be a little less grumpy. Because my expectations, I guess, were different from hers. She just kind of rides with it and just expects it to be chaos and bedlam and everything else, but, but mine were different. You see, expectations, whether conscious or not, have a massive part to play in our lives. What we expect are of our lives have a massive part to play about how we we feel about what we have in front of us. And even more so, they have a massive part to play in our willingness to say yes to God. If we have expectations that before saying yes to God, we we need to have a solid income because that was an expectation or we need to be with someone uh, and that was an expectation that we have or or our kids need to be in a good school or we need to get a good career or, or whatever it might be, all these expectations that we've layered up for ourselves. Maybe you have assumed certain expectations for your life as I have. And the question to ask ourselves is, where did those expectations come from? Because life rarely works out as we expect. We work on these assumptions of expectations all the time. We approach our career, we approach dating, we approach uh, our finances, we approach our health with a certain expectation of how it's going to map out. And a lot of them, are, uh, we, we have never really articulated, they're just there, and we find that when we don't get those expectations, it hits us like, like, like a brick wall, and we're like, whoa. And because life doesn't always turn out as we expect, those expectations can shape our happiness. Those expectations can shape how we look at other people and what they have. And we look at that thinking that's what we would have. They shape our security and what we place our security in. And most importantly, they shape our willingness to drop everything and follow Jesus. And the thing is we have these expectations and so, many, so much of life doesn't work out as per our expectations anyway and along the way we've said no to God about a few things because we were hoping for X, Y and Z to happen first. And the disciples were the same. As they were dialoguing with Jesus here in this first chapter of Acts, they had to have their expectations realigned. They needed them worked out, and it needed something dramatic because their lives were shaped. Their whole outlook was shaped by, the, by Jesus becoming king, the king of Israel, and the land would be restored to them, and Rome would be kicked out, and they could have their land once again. And it would have taken something dramatic to change them. And that's what happened. I mean, it's pretty dramatic what happened. He reminds them of the promise of the Holy Spirit, tells them to wait for this Holy Spirit so that they might be witnesses in all of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And then verse nine. After he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. We are people of the incarnation. We are people of the cross. We are people of the resurrection. Three things that we feel quite comfortable with, but we don't really talk about this bit. You know, the whole Jesus disappearing act thing, not to come back again thing. We don't really talk about it. It's kind of there, but not there. Don't really know. I mean, we can just about cope with the resurrection because all the evidence seems to point to the fact that the bodily resurrection of Jesus was not something of myth, but something of reality. But this bit what do we do with this? And so often we then go from the resurrection to the bit that we remember in a couple of weeks' time at Pentecost where the Spirit is poured out upon these disciples in the upper room. But this event that we're talking about today, the ascension of Jesus, was the event that uh, gave the disciples this reevaluation of their lives that they needed. And it enabled them to abandon their tightly held expectations of how life was going to be. It forced the issue. Jesus had to make it pretty clear that your expectations of how life is going to work out is not necessarily how it is going to work out. And there's going to be something dramatic that's going to show you that. So yes, we are people of the incarnation. And yes, we are people of the cross. And yes, we are people of the resurrection. But we are also people of the ascension. And it's a moment in Scripture that we, we look at and we think it feels almost unbelievable. We, we feel okay with believing in the miracle, miraculous healings of Jesus, and we feel OK with believing in the resurrection, but just Jesus just disappearing. But it's not something that we is a fringe belief. The ascension of Jesus is rooted in our Christian faith and has been throughout the centuries. It's it's creedal. In other words, it was put into a statement hundreds of years ago that unified the church to say, this is what we believe. The Nicene Creed was written uh, in in the 300s AD. And it was a statement of everything that the church could agree on on what we believed. And it says this On the third day, he rose again, he ascended into heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. That's what we believe. That's our church. And it's not just us, crazies in Kentish Town. Every church across two billion people sign up to this. So why was it so important? Why was it so critical for people to bother writing it into something that would unify the church over the centuries? Because it was the event that was the prequel to the Holy Spirit being outpoured that enabled the disciples to turn their life around. Their lives had been changed by the death and resurrection of Jesus. But this kick-started them into a new era where things were going to look different. And that new era changed the world. So what is it that we can do? What is it about the ascension that can, that can enable us to live differently as the disciples began to live differently? The first thing that we can see from here is the ascension enables us to live freely, In the authority of Jesus, to live freely in the authority of Jesus. The ascension points to the authority of Jesus. Because when he ascends, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's the image that we get. In the speech that Peter gives in a couple of weeks' time when we're going to look at Pentecost, in the speech that Peter gives to explain what on earth is going on as the Holy Spirit descends upon the upper room and many people are coming to faith, Peter gives this amazing sermon. And in the middle of it, he says this, that Jesus is exalted to the right hand of God. And the image here of being on the right hand of God is to say that Jesus has the ear of God the Father. He he is the one who is championing us. He is for us. He's the one interceding on our behalf. He represents us to God. God doesn't see our sinfulness. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. So we are presented perfect and blameless before God. That is what it means to sit at the right hand of God. And so that we know that when he sends us, when we say yes to him, we do so in the authority of Jesus. Jesus said at the end of Matthew's gospel, as he's commissioning his disciples, he said, all power and authority has been given to me, so I send you. So so the authority that we have to to operate as followers of Jesus is given to us from Jesus. it's, It's like he's our covering fire. As we go out into the world to live for him, he's the one who's taking the shots. He's the one who's going, he's championing for us. He's absolutely for us. And so when we live according to the, to the authority of Jesus, it gives a confidence, doesn't it, that somebody's got our back. It means that we take steps of faith into the world beyond that we may not naturally want to go to. We know we do so in the authority of Jesus. And it means that we're completely dependent on the King of kings and the Lord of lords, so dependent on him that it doesn't matter what we feel our inadequacies are where we've ruled ourselves out, counted ourselves unworthy, we're not holy enough, we're not this enough, we're not that enough. None of that really matters because everything we do is not in our own authority but in the authority of Jesus. And when Jesus ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father, it means that we've got covered. We've got cover. Someone's got our back. Jesus doesn't rule us out even if we want to. He takes us as we are and uses us For his kingdom. So, the first thing that we can do if we want to be people that don't live according to our expectations that we set up, but live according to being followers of Jesus, the first thing that that does, the ascension tells us, is that we can live freely in the authority of Jesus. The second thing is that we can live authentically in the humanity of Jesus. The ascension points to the fact that our very humanity is now in the new heaven and the new earth. Jesus didn't vaporize, Jesus just didn't go up in a puff of smoke like some magician act, he ascended into heaven in bodily form and that means in the heart of the divine, in the heart of the divine is a shared knowledge and lived experience of our vulnerable humanity. Jesus as he sits there is embodied of our humanity. The incarnation tells us that God himself stepped down and became like one of us, lived in our world, knew what it was to be you and me, was subject to the same things you and I are subject to, was subject to to hunger and need for sleep, subject to relationships, subject to to having arguments and disagreements, subject to um, being betrayed. And ultimately, subject to our ultimate thing that unites us as humanity, is that we are all mortal. And Jesus himself experienced mortality. And what that means is that our humanity is represented at the very heart of the heavenlies. That when he ascends, we know that there's someone who knows what it is to be like you and I, even in our suffering. We see that um, Stephen, one of the first Christian martyrs, when he was being stoned to death, the passage in Acts says this, that Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit and he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So when Stephen is at the point of death, he looks up and he can see his own humanity represented by Jesus Christ himself in the heart of the heavenlies. And when he shares in our vulnerable humanity, that gives God space to shape who we are so we can be more like him and we can be authentic in that way. Authentic in the true meaning of the word, which is to be the ones that we have been created to be. Not, not in the way that the world might define us or even we might def- define ourselves. We're authentically made in the image of God, but we're in a refining process. And that means that to live for him, to be able to live that kind of life and responding to what God has called us to, we know that, we, that because our frailties are known, that our what-ifs and our yeah-buts are known as well and they're understood that no longer are we subject to the things that we rate ourselves on, our abilities, but instead all we have to do is say yes, and that's our availability. So secondly, to live like this, uh, to live in the light of the ascension, is to live authentically in the humanity of Jesus. Thirdly, to live solely for the mission of Jesus. Acts chapter 1, the very first verse, it says... In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up into heaven. But if you look at Luke's gospel, it's the whole summary of Jesus' ministry on earth. It's everything. I mean, there's a bit in John's gospel that says, it, there, it, there were too many pages for me to tell you everything that happened. But essentially, everything is there. From birth to life to death to resurrection. Jesus' ministry, though, from Luke's perspective, has only just begun. Why? Because it's up to us now. And that's what the disciples got. They, they, They thought that Jesus was going to lead the charge all the way, all the way, all the way. Now that he'd risen from the dead, what was going to stop him? And he's saying it's up to you now and it's up to me now. The ascension places the mission of Jesus that he begun in our hands so we can continue it in the power of the Spirit. And Jesus, to make his point very clear, made it absolutely clear by by disappearing before their very eyes, as if he could make the point any clearer. It's up to you now, guys, because bye, I'm off. It's in our hands. Yes, he is the one that by his spirit leads the work that we do and we join in. Remember that Jesus said, I only do what I see my father doing. Well, it's the same but we it is in our hands we don't just sit back and wait for him to do something we join in but what does that look like then for us does that mean we have to suddenly be be uh, missionaries or or full-time vicars believe me that may not be your calling and i bet you're all breathing a sigh of relief But no, the word that Jesus says is, no, you're not going to be missionaries and you're not going to be church workers. You're not going to be um, expert preachers or people that uh, give apologetics. No, instead, he says, you are going to be, the word is, witnesses. When you receive power, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Too often, we look at the burden of the ministry of Jesus and say, I can't even get anywhere near that, so I'm not going to do anything at all. But he doesn't call us to be solicitors or barristers in a courtroom. He calls us to be witnesses. That means you and I don't have to have watertight arguments and suddenly be defendants for the whole of Christendom. What about the Crusades? And then you're like, oh, no, I wish I'd not started it. Every major religion has caused every single one, A, not true, and B, don't get into that argument. Um, anyway, Footnote. But the point is, you're not meant to be having those arguments anyway. You're meant to be a witness. What does that mean? I once was blind and now I see. I once was like this and I encountered Jesus and my life is different. Sure, they may not like it. Sure, they may disagree, but they can't really disagree with your story. It is just your story after all. You're to be witnesses in your workplaces, with your neighbors. That's all a witness. It doesn't mean going out onto the streets with a megaphone. It doesn't mean knowing everything there is to know about first century theology. It's just saying, I know Jesus and my life's different because of that. I once was blind and now I see. In every community, of course, it says in Jerusalem, that was their city. In Judea, that was the area around them. In Samaria was the area where no one went. And to the ends of the earth. In other words, no one gets let off the hook. Kentish Town, I believe, is in here somewhere. Somewhere in the ends of the earth. That's our job, to be witnesses. So to live solely for the mission of Jesus. You know, when all is said and done, our sole purpose on earth, above all things, is is not to be a great banker or teacher or student. It's not for me to be a great father or husband. That's not my primary purpose on earth. My primary purpose on earth is to join in with the mission of God. And after that, everything else follows. Seek first the kingdom of God, Jesus said, and everything else will be added unto you. So so often we get these things the one way round, and the expectations get lined up first, and then somewhere in there, God and the, what he's called us to is, is secondary. To so live solely for the mission of Jesus. And finally, live expectantly for the presence of Jesus. The Spirit, of course, was present before. We see the Spirit descending upon Jesus uh, at his baptism. And his ministry is fueled by the Holy Spirit. Everything he does, he does because he is led by and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Which is why he's able to say, and you will do even greater things than I. Because there's more of you and you are filled with that same spirit so go on and and so that same spirit is present before but but the Jesus uh, the disciples didn't need the presence of God in the same way because they were present with God because they had Jesus so what the ascension means is that that means that we have to expect the presence of Jesus because he's no longer with us here physically And the promises of Jesus is that if we wait, we will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. That if we can be people that live lives like that, then it's the presence of Jesus, it's the Holy Spirit that drives the agenda. And it's so liberating when we don't have to be tick box about our careers or about our financial situation. We're not trying to kind of square a circle, we can just say, I'm living freely in pursuit of Jesus. No matter what my mom or dad says about my career choices, no matter what my children uh, might expect of their lifestyle, no matter what their friends have or don't have for Christmas, that we as a family are living solely for the mission of Jesus and we're expectant of the power of God through his spirit. The Ascension kick-started the ministry of the church. The Ascension was the key moment when the disciples got it. Yes, Pentecost empowered, but the Ascension was the key moment where the penny dropped that it was now going to look differently. That what they expected for their lives was no longer going to be the case. And so they learnt themselves to live freely in the authority of Jesus. They learnt to live authentically in the humanity of Jesus. They learnt to live solely for the mission of Jesus. And they lived expectantly for the presence of Jesus. And the story of Acts and the reason that we're sat here is the result of that penny dropping. That lives were different. But it depends on the presence of Jesus. That's what we see at Pentecost. That's what he tells them to wait for. So why don't we do that together? Why don't we stand?